There's a change happening in the way we live, the way we work, the way we spend our money and make our decisions. We are evolving to be more conscious in our actions in a way that serves the world and makes it a better place. Welcome to The Ethical Evolution. The Ethical Evolution podcast is brought to you by Ethical Change Agency. I'm Bindi, I'm the founder, and my mission is to help ethical entrepreneurs and holistic healers to find their voice through spiritual coaching and podcasting. I'm honoured to bring you the stories of those who create change through healing, kindness, innovation, purpose, and spirit. Understanding that to create collective change, we need to be the change. It all begins with us. In this special episode, Leah Elson returns to the ethical evolution for a deep dive on pain. We cover the big questions like, what is pain? Can post-surgical nerve pain be resolved? How does phantom pain happen? Is high pain threshold a thing? And can women handle more than men? Does severe pain mean it's more damaging? And can we ultimately be pain-free? Leah Elson is a scientist, author, and public science communicator whose mission is to empower everyone to have a greater awareness when it comes to science. Welcome back, Leah, to The Ethical Evolution. Well, thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here, Bindi. Now, uh, for those who don't know, you're backed by popular demand. Uh, (laughs) Leah Elson, for those people who have been seriously living under a rock for the last year or more, and don't know who you are, can you please explain to us who you are and what you do? Absolutely. So my name is Leah Elson. I am a scientist. I am a nonfiction author, and I'm also a public science communicator. So you may have seen me around the internet (laughs) making silly videos by, again, public demand, explaining scientific terminology, scientific phenomenon, et cetera, anything the public asks for, I explain to them in great detail. And you do it so well, which is why you're back with us today. Um, You and I met back in November last year when you started your little podcast tour. Can you believe it's now August 2023 at the time of recording? And I can't believe it. Oh, my gosh. And you back then were like, I got this book I'm working on and (laughs) and now it's out and it has gone gangbusters. It has. It's it's been a wild ride. You know, I think um, the the most shocking thing for me is I had a couple of book signings and I thought, you know, there's going to be like two people there and one of them is going to be my dad. Right. <laughs> and, and I was shocked. I was at the ALA conference and we had a line that stretched around our booth, people just waiting for me to sign. And uh, then I went back to one of my alma maters. I went back to Harvard and I was like, this one's going to be really small. But we we packed the room and I had people travel in from like Connecticut. And it was so it was so amazing. It was enthralling. I was like, there's no way these people are here for me. <laughs> no way. And, um, you know, for those people who haven't grabbed your book, do you want to go go ahead and do your pitch and tell them what it's all about? Sure. I think if I lean this way, there's oh, a there it is. placement. The back. <laughs> so the book is the book is called "There Are No Stupid Questions in Science." It's written and illustrated by me, and it's a compendium of questions that I have not yet answered 
my, my public, right? So I get submitted questions all the time from people with scientific backgrounds, non-scientific backgrounds, and it spans all of the scientific focuses. And I, I have such a large repository that I thought, you know, these are really great pieces to be able to explain in maybe a little bit more detail, perhaps. And I was like, somebody should write that book. And then in the same breath, I was like, man, I should write that book. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so I did. I, I literally Googled, how do you write a book? <laughs> <laughs> And then we did it. And I, I had this wild idea like, hey, I should I should illustrate it in crayon. And uh, because it would be funny because it's a book for adults. And and I did it. And surprisingly, a publisher was like, we get it. <laughs> it's so strange. <laughs> but uh, it's it's been it's been a joy. It was a blast to write. And the reviews are phenomenal. So it's it's been very, very humbling and exciting. You just reminded me of that meme. Uh, I don't have enough crayons to explain it to you. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, you were going to say, you remind me of that meme, the golden retriever that's in a lab coat. And it just says, I have no idea what I'm doing. Because <laughs> that's also applicable. <laughs> but you do know what you're doing, which is why you're here. And can I just say, as I was just saying to you off air, I, I absolutely adore the book. I love it. Um, it is one of those ones you cannot put down and it makes you laugh, but you're learning at the same time. And your illustrations are just the bomb. They are Incredible. Um, And I just love, like, you know, if you don't have an idea of the kind of stuff you cover, like one that just comes to mind um, initially is why do men have nipples? Like, (laughs) and that's when you answer. And it's not, you don't go on for ages and ages. It's just a couple of pages, boom, answered it, move on. Keep it simple. Done. Keep it simple. It's funny because there are 103 questions, but the ones that people gravitate to are, why do men have nipples? And is honey actually bee poop? Are the two yes. that everybody mentioned? I love those. I love that question. I was like, hey, I'd never thought of it that way. Like it actually makes you change your thinking and, and look at the world in a different way. It's very cool. Well, I'm glad that that came across because I, I tell everybody, you know, science at its baseline level, it's so fascinating. And the people that became scientists are just the why kids that never grew out of it. You know, we're just like, why? Why is that yeah, a thing? Why? We're just why? like, hopelessly curious. And so I'm so glad that everybody has sort of joined in in this sort of uh, raucous awe for the world. And and so that that was the only thing I wanted. So mission complete. (laughs) There you go. Life complete. Now, uh, you know, you are here for a a very specific reason today, Leah. And people are like, why is she back? It's because (laughs) we are doing a deep dive about pain. It's something that we don't talk a lot about. And I thought it was about time we did. Now, why no would we like the present? Why would we be talking to you about pain, Leah? Well, so I am in my nine to five job. I don't just write books. I, I'm also <laughs> a scientist by day. And my nine to five job, I am a clinical development scientist, and specifically, I focus in the field of peripheral nerve repair. And in this context, we repair peripheral nerves to either restore functionality to limbs in the case of an accident, a laceration of a nerve, a crush of a nerve, something like that, uh, or to help to attenuate pain or to mitigate the chances of a patient being in chronic pain. So the sort of sphere of patients being in pain is something that I work very diligently with surgeons and scientists in my field on. And so uh, I think I can speak a little bit to the the pain questions you have for me today. And that's exactly why you're here. Now, we're going to start with what is pain? You know, like there's different types of pain and obviously there's different parts of the body, but let's just get to the root of 
pain? Like what's what's the experience and what is it? So pain is as unpleasant as it is, it is actually our body's defense mechanism to sort of alert us to the fact that there is some sort of damage or impending damage that's happening to our body, right? Pain is a signal from our body to our brain, like, hey, there's something not right here. And it forces us to respond. So as a, for instance, let's say that you are super sleepy and you're boiling a pot of water in the morning to make coffee, right? And you're not really thinking, you're sort of stumbling around and you put your hand on the pot and it's very, very hot. So what's happening there in a split second is there are signals from your hand. They're called nociceptive receptors that are triggered by that temperature. They send a signal very rapidly to your brain like, yo, there's something really uh, not good happening here. There's tissue that's possibly being 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 damaged. And that's the experience of pain. And then your brain immediately signals for a contraction of your hand. Mm. So it's this big loop. It's like the body saying like, there's something going on and the brain is like, all right, cool, move the hand away. And so pain is meant to trigger something to happen. Either you move a limb or you notice that what you're doing is uncomfortable. So you sort of shift in your seat or it can sometimes even trigger the uh, sympathetic nervous system. So it can trigger the fight or flight response. So you're like, okay, now I'm I'm feeling like hot lava getting closer and I'm now very prepped and ready to just run away as fast as I can. <laughs> so it is at its baseline level, although as I said, uh, uncomfortable though it may be, it is meant as a protective mechanism for us. Mm, so it's it's really for our survival, isn't it? And, uh, you know, like there's different types of pain too. So it's, it's like sometimes there's a stabbing pain or there's like a, a dull ache kind of pain. There's a scale for this too, isn't there? Sure, sure. There, so the two, I would call it main classes of pain, right? There's nociceptive pain, and that's pain where there's something that's being damaged. The tissues are being damaged. The muscle tissues, bones, et cetera, are being actually physically damaged by something. And that damage can be due to chemical means, right? So it can be like pH changes, things like that. Um, it can be to, to mechanical means. So there's like a crush or there's a stretching of tissue, something like that that's causing damage. Um, it can be due to inflammation. So that's all nociceptive. That's something that's happening to the tissue of a joint or a finger or a foot or something like that. Uh, the other class of pain is called neuropathic pain. And that does not necessarily need to have something happening to the tissue itself, but it's where the actual nerve is being damaged. So a sensory nerve is being damaged. And we're seeing more and more neuropathic pain these days as the rate of obesity and diabetes goes up because you start getting... Um, you start getting blood flow that gets cut off to some of these more distal sensory nerves, and that causes a breakdown of that nerve tissue. And so you get diabetic neuropathic pain where, you know, patients will complain like the, their lower legs will begin to ache and, and, you know, you have that sort of like chronic pain issue and, and that's uh, neuropathic and that's coming from a disease, uh, a narrowing of those vessels and a constriction of blood flow, but not necessarily like a, a hammer being dropped on a foot or something, you know. There's so many different ways <laughs> we can experience pain, obviously, and the severity of it. And often if you go to a doctor and go, look, I'm in a bit of pain, they're going to go, out of one to 10, what is it? You know, like 10 being, right. you know, like can't stand it to one, yeah, I'll live with it. There's that sort of spectrum that we can sit within. I mean, if it's like a 10 off the Richter, like that's really damaging potentially, isn't it? Of course, of course. And 
you know, it's not only evoking the, you know, thought process of, okay, what is causing that extreme amount of pain? Because to, you know, have that extreme amount of pain, you would assume that there is a stimulus that is proportional to Mm, that. And so mm. that's, that's something good. But also what I think more and more people in the medical field are coming to terms with is that this chronic pain that does not let up is exceptionally damaging to the patient psychologically, Mm. right? So we are in this phase now where the incidence of chronic pain is actually increasing year by year as our population generally gets older and they're dealing with more neuropathic pain, et cetera, or, you know, we become more obese, more sedentary. So a lot of sitting, et cetera, heavier bodies, you know, putting more strain on joints and the musculoskeletal system. So rates of pain are increasing. And unfortunately, this kind of chronic gnawing pain decreases quality of life, Mm -hmm. right? It's really difficult to get up and have a great day when the first thing you're experiencing is pain. And I think in the medical field, we're becoming more aware of this. And so more and more attention is being paid to how do we attenuate pain? Chronic pain is a thing that exists. How do we attenuate it? How do we correct it? How do we help patients live either with less pain or live with the pain that they have um, in a, a myriad of different ways? Mm. And and as you say, it, it's becoming something that's increasing uh, in our lives. And you know, getting back to that mindset kind of stuff is like, it just impacts every part of your life. Like if you're not getting enough sleep, it can actually onset depression. And also um, if the specialists are telling you, it's all in your head. Like yes, of course. you're just sitting in no man's land going, well, I've got this chronic pain. Help me, <laughs> you know? Well, and the, the worst thing I think is, and something that I deal a lot with now is that there used to be this old dogma where let's say you had to have um, like a, a small mass removed, something benign, yeah. and, and you you have a, a surgical scar and patients would say, doc, you know, like I have pain in this area where this, this tissue was removed. And the school of thought used to be well, yeah, of course you have pain there. You had surgery there. You know, that's that's kind of part of it. And we are now in this paradigm shift where we realize that something like chronic post-surgical pain is not normal. That is not something that it should be expected. That is a dysfunction in whatever took place there, whether it was a resection, et cetera. There was something that transpired there that is still sending pain signals and it's not normal. And luckily there are now practitioners and scientists that are recognizing that and trying to create algorithms to help put patients in buckets of, okay, who, who has these kind of pain? Okay. You have this kind of pain. So maybe we can help you this way. And then, oh, but you have a specific one. So we're going to help you this way. And, and it's beautiful. And we're all kind of coming together in the sphere to treat that and to bring quality of life back to patients, which at the end of the day is the most important thing. And and that's the kind of work you do, right? Where, uh, you know, particularly for post-surgical um, nerve pain, that kind of thing can be resolved, can't it? In, in many cases, yeah, we're learning more about the incidence of this kind of pain. But, you know, with nerves specifically, what we like to say is, is sort of an analogy is that if you were to take, let's say, like a high-powered electrical wire and you cut it and you just leave the ends free, what's going to happen is they're going to kind of spark, right? They're going to maybe like sneak around a little bit They'll and they begin to kind of like misfire these two ends. And that's kind of what happens in the human body, right? And so the only way to get that wire to stop sparking is either to disconnect it in totality or to basically stint it and put it back together, right? And splice that wire back together to give it a complete circuit. And the nerves in the human body are not unlike 
electrical circuitry, right? They do the same thing. They convey convey these, you know, uh, chemical electrical impulses, but they they operate in the same way. And so when you say go and you resect tissue, oftentimes a lot of those little fine nerve fibers will get cut in the process. And what you have are these free ends mm. that may be sitting in the human body just sparking and not really doing anything. And so what we do in my field is we say, okay, great. We know that if you cut one of those nerves, they will form what is called a neuroma if you don't put them back together. And an aroma is sort of this deposit of like scar tissue that sort of makes a little bulb at the end of the nerve, right? It tries to kind of scar itself over. And the little individualized axons, which are the wires that comprise the nerve in totality, they're really busy, right? So they will kind of grow out, but they'll grow out kind of gnarled and they'll try to search for their home. And when they can't find it, they'll curl back on themselves and they'll get stuck in this scar tissue. And they're sort of pointing at each other and they're cross-talking and they're sparking. And those are the pain signals that you're getting from these neuromas. It's because you have a wire that is just sparking around on the ground. And so what we know is that not all of these neuromas will be symptomatic. The pain may be so mild, the patient may not notice it, but the symptomatic ones can be corrected. You can go in and you can cut the little bulb off, the little scar tissue that's formed, and you can try to reconnect that nerve to something to complete that circuit, or you can put a little cap on it, or you can sort of bury it somewhere deep so that it doesn't go and spark and, and try to make a mess of things. Mm. Well, that makes complete and total sense. It's just rewiring, right? It's just why humans at the end of the day are kind of like glorified robots. We're like meat robots. Yeah, right. <laughs> no wonder you right. find this stuff fascinating. And and then the minute you start talking about it, I was like, I am just absolutely fascinated by this stuff. It's so fascinating. I, I love it. It's, uh, you know, and it's, it's funny because now that everyone is starting to get a better handle on what this means, it gives us a trajectory to be able to correct, right? It gives, it gives us a way to point our compass as a collective field of specialists to actually fix the problem instead of, unfortunately, you know, um, the, in the past, it used to be throwing opioids at the problem, right? Yeah. Because the way that opioids work is that when there are pain signals, as I was talking about earlier, you know, your body will send signals to the brain like, hey, there's damage happening here or the nerves aren't happy in this area. Like we need help. And the body is supposed to respond to that, right? But basically the way that opioids work is that they will stop the signal from making it to the brain. Gotcha. So the brain never perceives it. It never interprets it. And so, but it's it's systemic, you know, and opioids have all of these other issues and side effects and addiction problems associated with it. And so the beauty about understanding more about nociceptive pain, neuropathic pain, is that if we know we can correct it, we don't have to just treat the pain, right? Opioid is just treating the pain. It's just a temporary solution, but it's not fixing the problem. And so the more we know about the mechanics and the physiology of nerve repair and the way that nerves interact with their local environments and what makes the nerves angry, you know, because they're very finicky. Nerves Mm. are kind of... I'm going to say this. I'm going to put nerves on blast. They're a little bit like the prima donnas of the human body, right? You got to be really delicate. You got to treat them like A-list celebrities because even during surgery, like too rough handling of nerves, you can scar those nerves up and they'll just be like, nope, I'm just, nope, I'm just going to be angry and I'm going to send pain signals now. And so we know that very delicate handling of this tissue, um, ensuring that if there is damage to the nerve, you sort of cut that damage away and ensure that when you're splicing tissue together, that tissue is healthy so it can grow and complete that circuit and everyone's happy. You got to kind of, you got to placate the prima, prima donnas, you know what I mean? <laughs> so in those cases, you know, like there is a solution um, that is not drugs uh, for that kind of pain, right? 
There can be. Yeah. It depends on the mechanism of where that pain came from, right? Was it a trauma to the tissue? You know, was it a stab wound? Was it a person got in a car accident? And so really uh, when you're looking at diagnosing pain and ultimately treating that pain, you kind of need to be a bit of a Sherlock Holmes, Mm. right? And that's where I think patients can do a really good job with helping their practitioners be a Sherlock Holmes with them, right? And this can be a description of pain because nerve-related pain is very specific, right? It is a kind of burning pain Mm. or it can be like a tingly pain or a numbness. That's really indicative of something neuropathic versus nociceptive, you know, where you have um, pain that's come from damaged tissue can be like a throbbing, which, you know, associated with inflammation. And so if you can get really good at describing the kind of pain, exactly what it feels like when that pain is occurring, is it occurring with movement? Is it occurring when you, you know, depress uh, and touch that part, that that specific localized area, you know, is does it occur when like clothes rub up against it very gently? All of these little clues can kind of cue surgeons and practitioners in on what the pain's mechanism is, what the cause is, and then subsequently, what's the best route to treat it? Is it going to be uh, something like an electrical stimulator where you kind of jam up the signals and again, just like opioids, sort of prevent pain signals from getting to the brain so the patient never feels it? Or is it something where you're like, no, this seems really discreet and I can feel a little bump under the skin that seems like a little scarred up neuroma. We can go and clip that out and then make that nerve nice and happy and tucked away and put it to bed for the night so that it doesn't cause problems anymore. And that's it. Being a Sherlock Holmes can really... Um, <sighs> can also indicate whether there's other underlying issues that could be causing this as well, like something, a bigger problem that's not quite evident on the surface. Of course, of course. And, you know, it's also, uh, it, it's helpful for very complex cases, right? Because we we think about pain, but there's other different, very elegant, unique, interesting kinds of pain and sensation, like, for instance, amputees. They have there are two kinds of sensations they they can feel post-surgically. One is uh, phantom limb pain. Mm. The other is phantom limb sensation. And both of them are incredibly interesting physiologically, but can be debilitating for the patient. So the delineation is that phantom limb pain is where the patient perceives there to be pain in the limb that is no longer there. So the, the limb that has been amputated, they feel that there's like shooting pain, stabbing pain, all, you know, all kinds of pain, but many patients, you know, they say that the pain is debilitating, you know, it is sort of lifestyle stopping. Like Mm. there's nothing that you can do, but sort of dope up on opioids and lay in bed. Right. We have found that while there are a lot of different mechanisms that can contribute to this kind of pain, some of it may be neuroma formation, right? Because when you lose a limb, you're cutting through a lot of different nerves. And so if you have a lot of different neuromas forming, that's a lot of different points where nerves are sparking and causing problems and crosstalking. So ultimately that entire area is probably very, very sensitive and very painful. The other one, which is very interesting, and uh, my dad is actually an amputee and he experienced this. It's called phantom limb sensation, and it is not necessarily painful, but it's the sensation of feeling the limb still intact that's no longer a part of your body. And so my dad said that he could actually feel his arm that he lost tucked up against his body, and the hand was kind of curled up on itself, and he said he felt like it was wrapped in a warm towel. And again, this is something that's sort of on the bleeding edge of neuroscientific discovery. We're not really sure why this happens, but we believe that it has something to do with the brain 
recognizing that like, hey, I'm sending signals to a limb that used to be there, but like, I'm not getting anything back, right? It's almost like I'm I'm getting like the blocked signal. Like when you call someone, you're like, it's not going through. Am I blocked? Mm. Did this person block mm. me? And then the brain begins to remodel. It says, okay, well, I'm not getting good feedback that those signals are going through. So I'm just going to sort of change the pattern of signals that I send and I'm not going to send any more signals. So oftentimes this phantom limb sensation resolves on its own after a couple of years and the brain begins to remodel and reformulate ideas like, hey, that limb's no longer there. So I'm not even going to bother. Um, but very interesting. Both of them are, are interesting physiologically, something that scientists are still trying to unpack the mechanisms for both, but debilitating nonetheless. And, you know, in, in some cases, quite interesting. My dad was like, it's so weird. I feel mm. like my arm is it's just right here. Like it's draped across my belly, he would say. Fascinating. That, I just, uh, well, just unpacking how that mechanism actually works. So physiologically, it's almost like the pathway in the brain has gone, hey, this used to be here and I think I can feel it, but where is it? Exactly. And, you know, the body the human body is really, really good at resource conservation, right? The body does not like to just expend resources doing things if mm. it's if it's not going to do anything, right? And it's so it's the sort of like, if you don't use it, you'll lose it kind of a thing. Mm. And so really what we think is happening with like phantom limb sensation is that the brain is like, well, I'm trying to send signals for this arm to move and it's not, and I'm not going to waste my time anymore because there are other things I could be shuttling my energy towards. So eventually it is a very slow breakup process, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so the, but the brain eventually gets there. <laughs> We've all been there. We've all been there. <laughs> yeah. Now, Leah, I, I like to think of myself as someone who's got a fairly high pain threshold and I don't like that. Like, is this a thing? Is this a thing? Sure. Yeah, there's – so there are so many studies on pain thresholds. So there's – there are – there's two – two sort of characteristics associated with that. One is called the pain threshold. And that's where you begin to feel pain. Like how much stimulation do you need in an area to begin to feel that pain? And the other one is pain tolerance. And that's sort of what's the upper limit of that stimulus that you can take before you're like, yeah, no, it's, I'm good. And multiple studies have actually you know, sort of colluded together and have you know, confirmed an association of actually sex, biological sex and, and pain tolerance. So it's been shown that men have a higher pain threshold in some studies. So it takes a little bit more stimulus for them to feel pain, but their, their tolerance level is way lower than women. So, and if you, if anybody out there has tattoos or you're a tattoo artist, you're probably already like, Oh yeah. Oh no. Like yeah. men will tap out of a tattoo in <laughs> yeah. five minutes and women will be eight hours in the chair yep. asleep. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, so there, there are definitely nuances and, you know, there's still sort of this idea of, well, you know, maybe some patients have characteristics psychologically that contribute to that as well. So things like depression, uh, have an association with a lower pain tolerance. So they, their nerve ends seem to be a bit more on edge and these patients report, you know, feeling painful stimuli a bit easier. Um, and there's also things, you know, like when you're incredibly happy, you may not feel pain as readily. And then some of it is like very psychosomatic. And so there's all these very interesting ways that, because again, this is all just an electrical processing from the brain, right? That's all pain is, is just mm. your brain interpreting an electric signal. And sometimes you can jam that signal and the 
brain doesn't even get it. So you don't even know that it's there. It's the, it's kind of the way that like an epidural works, right? Like a, a nerve block. Mm. You are basically injecting anesthetics to those nerves so that that signal does not get communicated all the way up to the, to the big CPU. And that's the way that they, like the most famous nerve block is the epidural. That's how exactly how that works. So the, the mechanisms of pain and how you manage it and how you experience it are, are kind of all over the map and very fascinating. Mm. And I love that uh, you clarified for us that, that women can tolerate a, a greater amount of pain. I mean, good Lord, look at childbirth. Um, right. <laughs> and I, I was going to say, you know, some of that may be biologically and evolutionarily mm. protective because, you know, women for millions and millions of years, all of our ancestors, they never had the benefit of modern medicine where they could actually sort of apply analgesics mm for pain. Um, and so it's like either a woman can withstand that pain and like make her way through a successful birth or she passes out halfway through and that's not good for the mother or the child. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, women, and I know all the moms out there, as soon as they heard me say like men don't have a good pain yep. threshold, they were like, yep. <laughs> preach, sister, preach. <laughs> Science says so. <laughs> Science says so. We're the stronger of the two. <laughs> Now, as you've been talking, I've been curious, uh, and I, in my mind, I'm picturing little little nerves, you know, doing their thing in our body in their different ways. And I, I'm curious, um, you know, I, I think if our nerves are healthy, for one, um, our experience in pain might be a little different, or the management of pain might be a little different. Of course. How can we, you know, make sure our nerves are healthy throughout our system um, to help us have a better life? You know, so much of this is, as so many things in human health are, preventative care, right? We know that nerves tend to be a little bit more finicky in, in patients that smoke, right? Smoking is not very good for nerve health, and so that's not a good one. Um, again, nerves are very, very dependent upon a very luscious, steady state of blood flow. Mm. So if you are diabetic there are a lot of mechanisms that end up ultimately constricting the really, really teensy, like human hair fine vasculature that sort of supplies nerves. So when you have, you know, uh, diabetic issues, oftentimes those little teensy tiny vessels get occluded or they get constricted and you begin to cut off that blood flow, right? And so you need to ensure you've got good blood flow to those nerves. So um, sort of managing blood sugar levels, very, very important. Obviously, the, the biggie for all human health, diet and exercise, you know what I mean? Um, also, there's you know evidence to suggest that sleep is also very, very important for maintaining like peripheral nerve health as well as central nervous system health, right? You need to give your brain a little bit of a break too because it's also implicated in this process. Um, so a lot of it is just general health for human beings, you know, and um, I think that there's something to be said for the fact that our modern lifestyles are so sedentary. And so getting up and going on a walk and again, just getting that blood moving and, you know, opening up that cardiovascular system a little bit, putting it, putting it through its paces, helping with that blood flow and helping those nerves stay nice and intact and healthy. And I was actually talking to someone um, earlier this week who was uh, someone who'd uh, basically rebooted their whole life. Uh, they went through this real corporate stressful lifestyle to the point where, um, you know, they they ended up in really serious surgery and nearly died. And oh, wow. they ended up rebooting their whole life, getting rid of all the chemicals in their body. And they now, you know, market all these supplements and all this kind of stuff that actually help detox your body and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, and also reverse aging, all these kind of things. Um, 
But it just made me curious, and and it's something that is a theme through all the things that I talk about with people who are changing the way our health and our well-being is, is that we know nothing about us and we've all got a body, you know? Like we are so unaware of this meat suit that we came here with. And I think this is why I love sitting with you is because, you know, we just have no idea. Like each one of us got a body but we've got no clue. No clue. And, you know, that was when I went through gross anatomy, you know, we were fortunate enough, you know, lucky enough to have donor bodies. And I was asked to give, we had a sort of like a, a donor appreciation memorial, right? A memorial service for, for our donors who mm. so selflessly gave their body to science so that the next generation of scientists and surgeons and physicians could learn, right? And, you know, I remember thinking, and I, I, I talked about it in my memorial speech, that, you know, we see so much more intimately into the bodies of other human beings than, than their families, than themselves would ever know their bodies. We knew them so much more intimately, you know, because you're resecting mm. fine tissues. The, the donor that I had, he had had, uh, you know, a bypass in his heart and he had some stenting done. And so, you know, I could actually view that and see that. And it's like no one else, no matter how close people were to him, even himself didn't see the inner workings of his body. And how precious and special that was. But it also made you realize as you're doing it, like, man, I have no idea what's going on inside of myself. And, um, and it's, it's fascinating and it's, but it's something that I think that we are very complacent to. So it's easy, I think, to get stuck in the sort of rat race of the day to day and sort of begin to let stress break you down as your, your previous guest had experienced firsthand and to kind of succumb to the sedentary lifestyle and the Netflix and chill. But at the end of the day, you know, your body, like it needs you, it mm. needs you to, to keep it healthy and intact. Right. And, um, I think that that's sort of the, the gift and the burden that we bear is being charged with the responsibility of this, as we say, like this meat suit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's more than the physical as well, because, you know, um, I, I like to think that we've got, you know, more than just this physical body, we've got, you know, the emotions that sit underneath it. And then we've got the spiritual side that also sits behind all of that. And it's, it's like this puzzle piece where it all just comes together and makes one big pie, you know, and if we don't look after all the pieces, then it all just kind of falls apart. Well, and I, I'm very, I'm very spiritual in the way that I love like elegant mathematics and I love, you know, quantum theory and things like that. And at the end of the day, what you have in your body is so special because all of the elements in your body are a product of the death of a star, an exploded star somewhere in universal history in our neighborhood that spit out all of these heavy atoms and, then eventually coalesced over billions of years to form this little blue rock that eventually all these little things coalesced in its oceans to eventually form us. And we are just little bits of the universe that have come together with enough elegance to recognize itself, right? We are the universe recognizing itself and it's such a precious thing. So please, everyone out there, protect your meat suits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think you're going to make a sticker out of that. I think, yeah, protect your meat please. suits. Please protect your meat suit. I, there's good, it's just going to be a bumper sticker on my car, no context. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Only so only we will know what it means. Only Bindi and I. That's it. <laughs> and the listeners, of course. Yeah. If you guys see me, you can be like, oh, that's her. <laughs> so I, I guess, Leah, the the ultimate question I have for you is, can we be pain free? That's a great question. You know, there are 
inevitabilities in the world, right? There are inevitabilities. There are unpredictable things. There are consequences of sustaining trauma, right? You may not want to, but you might accidentally be mounting a TV by yourself as I did and (laughs) drop a hammer on your foot. And then, you know, for some reason, no matter what you do, there's always going to be pain in that foot. Um, But I think that we will reach a period of time in which we have sort of biohacked our system enough to possibly be able to turn some of these things off. And we're, we're trying now, right? There's like peripheral nerve stimulators, which are implanted in the human body next to nerves. And they're, they're just little electrical signals that if you have a painful nerve, you're like, Oh, here, my median nerve, it's, it's, it's firing. Like it won't stop. It's sending pain signals. You kind of tuck that electrode next to the nerve and you more or less jam that signal. So at the level of the spinal cord where it's like, okay, you've got a gate, right? You've got Mm -hmm. like a little gate that you can either open up and you can tell the brain, Hey, I'm in pain or at the level of that gate, there's a little inhibitory neuron that's like, you shall not pass. And it's like a Gandalf there, right? At the gate. (laughs) And so I think that, that, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to get there, right? These nerve stimulators are like, okay, cool. We can make Gandalf, like we can alert him, make him a little bit more powerful. So those, those signals don't go through, but so far it's an imperfect system. So I think the more that we research and the more, more importantly, the more colleagues in my field come together and share all of their beautiful findings and, and come together for the sake of sort of human health and getting people past this issue with pain and losing their quality of life. I do think that there will come a time where we may not be able to pain, be pain-free constantly all the time, but we can possibly correct it and anticipate it far better than we do now. So, And it's got me curious, you know, like in the work that you do, there'd be probably some research and innovation going on looking at how can we be pain-free and, and also like what kind of biohacking can we do to be, to and, be and a whole different human? Oh, of course. I mean, that that breeds an entirely different conversation of like, well, you know, if you want to be pain-free, you got to get rid of the meat suit and you got to kind of transition <laughs> into just like an actual metal thing. Um, but one of the things that I love doing as a clinical development scientist, my job is to find groups of patients that have been historically experiencing poor outcomes, you know, for certain procedures. So whether that's like a prostatectomy for prostate cancer and like those nerves just get trashed during that robotic procedure, or, um, you know, for instance, women that undergo mastectomy and they're left with chronic pain where that breast tissue used to be, you know, and, and a lot of these patients, like that has just been their way of life. It's just Mm. sort of a, yeah, you got like a 40% chance that you're going to have chronic pain. Sorry. But now the beauty about what I do is I get to identify these patient groups and say, I think we can help you. And I we get to come up with what's going on. Is it surgical technique? Is it physiology? And then we get to sort of think tank. And that's my job is to think tank with other scientific colleagues and with surgeons, maybe with patients to say, okay, we think we have a good roadmap for what's happening. And I think this is how I can help you correct that surgically. And that's the beauty of what I get to do. And, um, you know, I've done a lot of different medical research throughout my career. I was in oncology for a little bit, but the pain world is amazing. And it's so impactful because you can impact a patient like instantaneously, you know, Mm. you can be like, we've got a surgery for that, ship them in, they come out. And I mean, some of these patients, they're like, I cannot tell you how different my life is. You know, we have patient testimonials all the time. Like, you know, amputee patients, I, 
like I literally could not get out of my bed and I lost my quality of life for years. And then we went through and sort of had these amazing surgeons that found all these little neuromas and cropped them out and then protected the nerves. So they didn't spark anymore. And these patients are, are out dancing, going to restaurants. And they're like, I have my life back. And that is so beautiful and so special. And I think that at its baseline level, that's what we do, what we do. Right. Yeah. And that must be such a rewarding thing for you to know that you can give people a quality of life when they've been given a diagnosis that could be quite a dark one. Of course. Or, you know, the worst thing that, that you could hear as a patient is when you go in with this problem that is debilitating and crippling your life, you say, I'm in pain. And the doctor says, I, I don't know, like I can give you a prescription, but I don't know what it is. And that's, I mean, how disheartening, you know? And so I think steadily we're marching forward and beginning to understand a little bit better how we can help day by day and patient group by patient group. And it's, it's important. And really empowering the, the medical industry to, to do a better job, really. And, yeah. And more importantly, empowering the patients to say, yeah. I will no longer accept an answer of, I don't know, that's just the way it is. It's, it's not, there are, there are other possible options out there. You just sometimes have to find the, the right surgeons and it may take a while, but could be worth it. Well, Leah, our aim today was to educate everyone about pain. And I can tell you what, I have learned a lot <laughs> that I did not yes. know. Uh, I know. I know a bit more about my meat suit now that I didn't know before. <laughs> and I can't thank you enough for that. Now you have been with us before and I have asked you this question previously but I'm going to do it again because you might have a different perspective today that you didn't have back in November. I might, or I might be tragically disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if you're consistent. <laughs> I mean, with the focus on pain, what's the change you'd like to see in the world and how can we bring it to life? Um, I would love to see a more communal opening up of research that is readily accessible to everybody, to patients, to practitioners. There has been this trend towards the inaccessibility of scientific findings through journals, like medical journals, uh, charging money to be able to access findings, right? So if I publish a paper, you'll say, I would love to see what Leah just wrote up about pain. And that journal's like, no problem. For the low price of $25, you can take a look at her manuscript. And I feel like that that's very much limiting the work that can be done because now there are these gates and bars for financial gain being put up for patients and other researchers to take a look and share in human collective knowledge. And if you look, you know, 80 years ago or so, you had physicists around the world writing each other letters, mm. sharing their problems, right? You had people writing to Einstein and saying, hey, I'm really stuck on this, this equation. And he would look at it, say, hey, I think you should try these extrapolations and these derivations and would send it back and people would just share knowledge. And um, we've gotten a bit away from that. And so that is a change I would like to see is a, a greater accessibility to the medical findings of colleagues. I couldn't agree more and I can just see Einstein uh, writing that letter uh, back to someone with a different equation and now we've got the internet um, and we could share it like within seconds, like come on, it's 2023 people. <laughs> of course. I mean, granted now as a scientist I'm guilty of sharing probably more memes than science. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you're doing it in an educational way half the time. So. <laughs> uh, sure, sure, of course, of course. 
We're all guilty. We're all guilty. <laughs> but I think it's so important in that um, that zero cost information for people so that we can know more about our meat suits. And uh, you and I have a shared love of our man crush, uh, Andrew Huberman, who does this really well. Uh, so, Andrew, if you're listening, please hit us up because, yeah, we we support this cause too. Of course. Mm. And also, Bindi would like to be on your show. <laughs> or, or he could come here and you could go or on you his, could, you know, like – Listen, We're or open. we could have a we could have like a, a three panel. party picnic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you said panel. I said picnic because I like to eat. Mindy's <laughs> <laughs> keeping it very professional as always. <laughs> oh, my friend, I love spending time with you, and thank you so much for being a part of the ethical evolution. Thank you so much for having me. It's been amazing. Thanks for listening to the Ethical Evolution Podcast. If you're ready to be the change and would love to work with me on finding your voice through spiritual coaching or creating your own podcast with impact, visit ethicalchangeagency.com. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for The, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Electric Acid.